For my monster from his slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the mash He did the monster mash The monster mash It was a graveyard smash He did the mash Ooh, I love it. Happy Halloween, Katie. Happy Halloween, Patrick. I'm glad you're wearing your costume. This is, uh, it's Sunday, so our show is the main course. On Heritage Radio Network. And um, what's going on today? We have got a great show. We have uh, the Professor Andy Smith, and we also have Amanda Hesser. And we have the wonderful Amanda Hetzer. So it's a theme because uh, Andy came in in particular because he was an advisor for the New York Times cookbook. He was an advisor, you know, and Amanda has been six years pulling this book together. Right, a so mighty effort. It's going to be a, a great show. Andy Smith and Amanda Hesser talking about recipes over the past hundred years or more in that America. have been published in the New York Times. Very, so very interesting. It's, a, it's, a, it's going to be a cultural, uh, a cultural crossroads from one decade to the next. We'll we be should able say to that we are the history. We have a new sponsor today, Katie. It's a new sponsor for the entire network. And I'm going to read verbatim the the single sentence. They're very modest. Cane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. That was written by Christopher Howell, who's the winemaker at Cane 5. It is one of the most beautiful wineries in the world. What's the main road? Highway 29 and Silverado Trail and Napa, and it drives all the way up through those little beautiful towns. Those are the two main roads, I think, of the wine highway there. Uh And if you make a left and go up towards the coast, you go up these really roundabout curvy hills. You can only drive like 15 miles an hour type hills. And when you get to the very top of one of these little roads, Cane 5, they call it 5 because there are five fields and each grape, you know, the grapes that grow there, you know, all have different characteristics. Or different varietals. So it's a domestic wine. And it's so funny. We think about local this, local that. But with our wines and beers, we don't think about it quite as much. And so by buying cane, you're buying someone who supports networks like ours. And also you're buying domestic and, you know, supporting this terroir that, you know, is... And supporting the industry that creates it. How do so you spell cane, by the way? C-A-I-N, Vineyard C- and Winery. Yeah, Christopher now I wouldn't Howell. have known that. And I just love that he stayed with me all these years. He was the first guy to ever take out ads in Slow Magazine. No kidding. And I never had a real reason to work with him until the Heritage Radio Network started. And he, you know, also turned us on to Heifer International, you know, and he's a very, he's listens to our shows. And so anyway, it's a real That's honor. very gratifying. So, fantastic. Katie, you were just back from a paid visit. Yes, I went on the- a press junket. It was actually a trip uh, primarily geared towards chefs, and it okay. was sponsored by the Certified Angus Beef, which is a nonprofit organization that owns no beef itself, but which is part of the Angus... Um, now I'm blanking on what they're sort of... But the Angus Breed Association. And, um, and their, you know, their mission, obviously, is to make people want to buy... Uh, certified Angus beef, which has become kind of a watchword for high quality beef. Um, What's their definition of Angus? Is it eighty percent? No, 50, actually, only fifty one percent. Fifty one black hide, but there are some other confirmation uh, characteristics that have to be met. And in order to qualify as certified Angus beef, there have to be marbling uh, scores that have to be met, and some other. It has to be what, like prime or what? What's Not that? even. I mean, they ha- they sell a lot of choice, but. Um, in fact, probably most of their meat is choice, like any other 
cattle operation. I mean, there's very little meat that really qualifies as prime. About so one give to us the headline. So you fly in to so Colorado. So I fly into Colorado. I get to Denver. We stay in this um, sort of a mining town called Westminster, and um, uh, which was established, to my surprise, about 100 years ago. But the fact is, is that it looked like a completely brand new, like dropped from you know a prefab box onto the landscape kind of a place. In fact, the place that I was staying, this Weston... Westminster, um, which was a lovely hotel, but it, it 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 sort of it had this thing called a promenade, and it led you to across a bridge and a, a fake water feature and everything. It was very, and you saw the Rockies in the distance. I mean, it was really very extraordinarily uh-huh. picturesque. Except that all around you was absolute dreck. I mean, it was just like sort of gray tumbleweeds. But here was this very manicured. I mean, for me, it was like a New Englander. It was totally bizarre. And I got you're to used this to Rhode Island, trees, the brush kind of trees. Like- Wuthering Heights type environment. Yes, cultivation, fields of green, and so forth. Anyway, so um, you take this little walk, meander through the the thing, and there's and there's and there's oceans of of huge restaurants with no one in them on a giant plaza that at the end of which is is a twenty four theater movie complex. There was nobody there. I arrived in mid afternoon. Did you stay at the hotel all four days, or did you actually take a tour? Of well, the- we took. We went to many different locations, obviously. Okay. So one of the places we went, um, the first place we went actually was what's called a seed stock ranch, and this is uh, it was called Aristocrat Angus, and this is an operation that basically. Um, is a cow calf. It's they they Are inseminate. They a sperm bank? It's a sperm bank. Okay. And guess who won? The weight quiz on the prize stud bull. Yes, you? indeed. Yes. Katie I, Kiefer? I beat all the stockmen out. Yeah. Really? I guessed within 10 pounds what this animal weighed. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> Do you weigh yourself a lot? Or uh, you no, I don't. I, I attribute it to my butchering experience yes. and the fact that I was in the food business for so long that I can determine again? weights just by looking at them. What? Where were you a butcher again? Broadway Butcher Broadway on butcher. the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So do you think that cattle... Op- so wait, so first you saw so the So first seed we bank. saw that, the seed bank, that was... You know, that was all about determining genetics and genetic characteristics, including, here's something, they have a whole score sheet uh, of how they determine genetics for these animals. And one of them, for instance, a very important one was ease of birth. Who who knew? But the fact is, for a first-time calfer, for a heifer who is delivering for the it's first time, if the, if the baby is too big, it can damage the cow and put her reproductive future at risk. And so they want a low birth weight at the beginning, and then they want an animal that's going to take on weight very quickly afterwards. So are there calves And they can there? breed for that. They're little baby calves Yeah, they there? had calves there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. And um, and then the next day, uh, everybody else was allowed to go to a Cargill processing plant. Why not you? Because you're a journalist? Because I'm in the media. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Cargill has a policy. Now That's uh, a crazy policy. As I was telling Andy earlier before we started the show, um, because I'm such an incredible suck-up and teacher's pet, I immediately ingratiated myself with the CAB guy, the head guy. What did you do? Um, I just asked a lot of questions. I mean, I evinced a lot of interest in the industry, which the chefs really, they don't have the same, you know, they just don't have the same Chefs are sometimes very shy outside of the kitchens. Yeah, a little bit. Sometimes. And um, these guys were all, these were not, you know, from high-end restaurants. These were all kind of nice mid-level restaurants. They're all doing fine. They, you know, they sell a lot of beef, obviously. They're certified Angus beef reps, essentially. They're brand ambassadors. And um, so we, they didn't let me go to the Cargill plant, but they took me. But That's I later crazy. heard from the um, oh, the worst public relations move possible. 
yeah. is to refuse entrance to of? a journalist. Yeah. What are they afraid? Turned of? out it was just, um, you know, well, I don't even want to go there, but it was basically they have a policy because they've been cru- they've been, you know, so. Well, I know you're away. being nice to them. You're all positive about the. Industry I'm not being nice to there. them. It's just they're they're they claim they're going to make another trip happen for me. They claim that I'm going to have a one on one with Temple Grandin, my personal hero, and we'll see if that happens. So then, what else did you see? The thing that I saw that really annoyed you because I came back proselytizing about this She's is like, the really, feedlot. It's like a heritage farm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, not like a heritage farm, but it is by no means the uh, seventh circle of hell. It really wasn't. And I well, have, of course, the one they're going to take Well, they you show to. us the gold standard. Of course, yeah. they have gold standards. They of need every... to be graded like the restaurants. I'm not saying that they don't. But what I am saying to you is that what they showed us was the gold standard of cattle operations. And it was and impressive. I had absolutely nothing to say. So the cattle had room? They had plenty of room. They were happy. They were healthy. And if you look at the economics of it, if you think about it from their point of view, this is an industrial livestock operation. They are in it to make money. They are not in it to see animals suffer. And the only way that they can make an animal eat enough feed to grow as fast as they want it to is by making the animal comfortable. And I can't that's believe what they you do. bought into that. Well, well all right. No buy-in. It's so just listen, what we it only is. have a minute left. I am going to end <laughs> this. this like... <laughs> This caressing of the industry with the great New York Times opinion piece. <laughs> so does that mean that you're not going to accept money from Certified Angus Beef if they support Heritage Radio Network? No, but we won't change. Yeah, we'll accept it, but we won't change our mission or whatever. <laughs> no, and it would have to be not. from the gold standard. Well, and we need proof of which farms as, are supporting us. As I kept saying to the guy, the head of the John Sticka, the head of CAB, there's room for everyone at the table. Well, to, I don't mean to be a sticker in the mud, but. <laughs> Only four percent. Stick it in my butt. The reforming meat, the reforming meat uh, piece, an opinion piece. Only four percent of the hogs in this country were sold in the open market in two thousand nine. Heritage Foods did a couple thousand, you know, uh, about ten thousand of yeah. those. Um, but um, I just wanted to say, you know, I support Tom Villasac who is trying to um, stop livestock uh, from being traded from packer to packer and to reinstate yes. dignity to the rancher and to allow them to be businessmen too by not castrating them and just, you know, mafiaing them all the way hey, out I'm, of legitimacy. Well, this goes back to the whole Gypsa yes, controversy. Exactly. Which, and so, but, which Temple Grandin wrote a wonderful editorial that you sent me, which yes. said that the that if they change those Gypsa rules, this could have a very negative impact on the lives of the animals. Well, they claim it's... Yeah, that's BS. You know, they're, know. they're afraid of change, so they're criticizing it. Let me tell you... I do I, not know the answer. And JBS, don't to. these are the four big guys. JBS, JBS Tyson Swift. Foods... Cargill and National Beef Packing. I admire that they have gold standards that they can take journalists to. I question why they can't take journalists all the way through the system. I couldn't agree with you more. And and they might have a gold standard, but every farm needs to be graded. And if there is a C or whatever, the equivalent of an F in any of those, then they are implicated. If they are buying from Fs, they are implicated. And I, enough, I like Patrick. that they pay for your trip and all that. But um, I would have I gone wrote, even if I had to pay for it myself. As I wrote in my interview in Bon Appetit, a happy animal is one that is allowed to fulfill its God-given instincts. And walking is a natural instinct. Well, these anyway, animals were walking. We are going to come back, as we have already said, with uh, Amanda Hesser and Andy and Smith. Professor it's Andy a really Smith. awesome Halloween-themed main course.
So, our awesome engineer, Nat Wiener, has been making these music selections. And guys, do you have any idea what movie that's from? Um, Halloween? No. Katie? Saw 3? <laughs> no, did Saw 2? Candyman. Oh. Candyman. I'm that, sorry, I didn't see that movie. Actually, CBS this morning had a uh, whole thing on clowns. Which is very As funny. As the scariest thing in the yeah, world. Yeah, Mo Rocca was uh, the host of that segment. Anyway, what an honor. I mean, uh, it really is a tribute to the network that two people of your caliber would come to talk about such an important book. Uh, welcome, guys. Thanks. Welcome and congratulations, Amanda Hesser, on the publication of the New York Times cookbook, The Essential. New York Times cookbook. Six years in the making. And a hundred years of New York Times recipes combined. 150, 150 plus. 150. Oh my God, forgive me. That's okay. So tell us about some of the real oldest ones first. Like what is the oldest recipe you have in there? The oldest recipe in the book, it's also the first recipe in the book, and one of the oldest in the New York Times is Cafe au lait. And it was really, it was written, it was sent in by a reader who used the the recipe as a way to kind of rail against um, American breakfasts. Um, really? Yeah, saying that they were too kind of meat-laden and that we should actually be breakfasting like the French do um, and just having cafe au lait and something lighter. And it, it, a lot of it sort of um, sounded Michael Pollanish, actually. How interesting. And that, and that, that, was, recipe, 18, that was 1856. Did Sorry. that recipe say like where you had to get coffee? I mean, did it have to explain things like... I can read it to you if you want. It's very, be, I'm interested it's very in the basic. oldest one because that's a Well, you're a food first. historian as well, Patrick. Yeah. So. Do you have any medieval American ones in there? <laughs> <laughs> um, here we go. Ready? Yes. Uh, it is often a wonder to us Americans how a Frenchman can live at so little expense and still enjoy as good health as if he had meat daily. And the fact is, we eat altogether too much animal food. Hmm. And if anyone will try for a few months and eat meat only at dinner, I feel sure he will not desire to return to the strong diet. I was in France 15 months and ate nothing during that period for breakfast but café au lait, i.e. coffee with milk, for which I usually paid four cents. They have two methods of preparing it, as far as I learned. The popular manner is, first, to make a decoction of coffee as strong as possible with water, then add as much to, to this of this to boiled milk as you wish and sweeten. Lovely. And this was in 1856. That's right. Other than that and who was the campaign, who was, was the contributor cool. of this recipe? Who was the writer? Um, the initials are just um, ABC. Oh. <laughs> and Andy Andy Smith from the New School, who is a, a noted food historian and author. Um, what you, what's what was happening in the United States in 1856? What were that, we eating? That's an early. Um, I mean, that's an early description of what we were eating. And the answer is a lot of lard, a lot of bacon, a lot of meat at breakfast, including steak including pork, including um, lamb, including mutton, including you name it. it was this there. is the whole country was eating the that? The whole country, yeah. It was mainly a rural nation. I mean, you think of, it's not, not the type of the United States that it is today, I'll phrase it that way. So you had lots of people, and breakfast was by far one of the most important meals, and it was laden with, with all sorts of meat. Not only was it laden with meat, but all of the other products, for instance, like potatoes, would have been cooked in lard. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you had a or large pork fat. Yeah, yeah. Pork fat. So you had a huge it. amount of of um, of meat that would have been served at breakfast. And, of course, most people who lived in rural areas would have worked off those 
was you know three or four thousand calories that they would have consumed. So, yeah. and uh, that was the same for lunch and dinner, or was meat mainly a domain of, uh, of breakfast? No, meat was a domain of breakfast. You would have had no lunch. You would have had dinner, and dinner would have been served maybe at two o'clock in the afternoon and a very light supper. So you have wow. a very different pattern that that would have developed later. Uh, to what we think of today as the breakfast, lunch, and dinner pattern that we have during industrialization time. So, Andy, I wanted to ask you something, because um, the thing that I was sort of surprised by um, in, in the Times archive was that, yes, there is a lot of lard called for, but not, but, but not only. I mean, there is a fair amount of oil and, and olive oil mm. in, the, in the 19th century and That's then the very early 20th century. And in Made fact, here, not imported. Well, right? It's all imported. Well, so, it had to have been all imported, yeah. Yes, of course. And in 1897, actually, the Times did this story about extra virgin olive oil and how it was pressed at um, J.E. Blanc in uh, Provence. And um, and actually, the writer, a writer in 1904 claimed that it was starting to like supersede other fats uh, for frying. And I'm just curious if you, um, if this sort of rings true to you, or if this maybe was a trend at the time, or or what? Yeah, lard was the number one frying medium in America up until World War II, so we don't we don't think of it that way. You don't you really don't have the production in the United States of vegetable oils until the 1930s, and then they're targeted at an ethnic group, targeted at people who are mm. Jewish, and yeah. so um, and and if you look at the early advertisements, they're in Yiddish. They're not even in English. No, no kidding. Trying to convince because Jews the Jews to are eat not going to eat pork. Fat. No, to eat vegetable oh, oils that vegetable are oils, that are began to be produced in in the 1930s. Well, in response to, I guess, to large Jewish Jewish migrations into into big influxes of Jewish populations into the United States, which happened from, I guess, the turn of the century through... Right, but they don't become a commercial market until the 1930s. That's mm-hmm. not at that until that point when you have products that are coming out that are not lard-based, that are oil that that people who are observant Jews can can employ. So it isn't really after till after uh, World War II, and, and during the war, you actually had places where you would go and put lard and put all of your pork products because it made uh, glycerin, which mm-hmm. is a made product, a nitroglycerin. So you needed it for the war effort. So lard goes out during World War II. And you have uh, vegetable oils, which really don't become popular until after World War II in the 1950s. Hmm. I'm thinking Crisco. Oh, now Crisco's get different. Crisco too was uh, it's not not really um, a uh, it's a made product, of course, and it was also targeted at people who were Jewish. If you look at the hmm. early recipes in 1912 or 1913. For Crisco, they're all in Yiddish, and so it really was wow. a very narrow um, target in who they were trying to sell their products to. Hmm. But that expanded obviously because I can remember we had a jar, of, we had a blob of you know a container, you, a vat of Crisco on the stove always when you, I was growing up. Can in the you 50s. make a, a pie crust without Crisco? That's a question. Yes, you can. Well, you can make it with lard. <laughs> That's a miracle. I didn't know that. We once had uh, Gramercy Tavern uh, asked uh, us for lard for their apple pies, but before some of the staff rebelled, so they had to take a vote, and we won by like two votes. <laughs> and for one month, they were serving a savory apple pie, and the staff had to take the extra time to explain that if you were vegetarian, you couldn't get the apple right. pie. But, the, um, have you ever had the flying uh, pigs leaf lard? Uh, no, it's I'm sure it's, delicious it's from those amazing. pigs. Yeah. Lard is delicious. And yeah, if you have good if lard, it's, good. it's yeah. It, it sort this of is not the armor view. block of white. I mean, although that's what I grew up making no, pie and crust it's, out it's of. No, it actually but. has almost like a pink, pinkish, um, yes, golden hue. It, I it, made it, my it, own yeah. lard from a, 
I think something that Patrick gave me a year ago or so, and I used it to make tamales, and it was just incredibly delicious. And all I did was like braise a pork shoulder and and save the rendered fat, mm-hmm. and then I used that as the ingredient, as the fat component in my tamales. It was Fantastic. superb. So Amanda, tell us, like as um, Andy was saying, uh, you know, all of a sudden lard start, you know, had a, a stranglehold on on American, you know, frying culture or whatever they did with it. Uh, up until World War II, what other major ingredients or technologies? I mean, did the recipes of certain, like of the 20s or of the 30s or the 40s, I mean, were there all of a sudden an ingredient that became very popular or technology that became very popular? Well, there popular? are a couple of things. I mean, <clears throat> and I'm forgetting the exact year, but I think it's in 1930-something, the blender was invented. And that actually transformed soups forever. Mm. You know, and it, it, if you think about it, it really makes a huge difference in what you can do with the soup and what kind of flavors you can extract. Um, And of course, there's that's still evolving because, you know, right now, you know, restaurants have much more powerful blenders that get much, much more smooth um, soups than than you can get even with a a very good KitchenAid or whatever at home. Um, So, I I mean, that that was a sort of technology um, um, step forward. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would I would say, um, you know, the thing that was the biggest shift, I think, like, over the 150 years, well, first, is it, it sort of went, like, it was kind of like a roller coaster. There were, like, there was tons of a variety of ingredients that we were using in the 19th century. And this is, of course, just based on the 19th, the New York Times archive, and Andy could speak to a much kind of broader um, landscape. Um, and then things kind of sort of, did, like, it, our kind of love and inspiration around cooking seemed to kind of die out during the wars oh. and it takes a couple of decades you know after to, to sort of recover but the thing that what happens though is that um over time recipes just become like the layers of flavor um become much more complex like now right more now modern yeah well like over i mean just we we want more and more um kind of contrast in in a dish we want the sweet we want the salty sour bitter you know, we want umami, and then we want lots of textures in there. And at the same time, we want our recipes very pared down. Hmm. So it's um, hmm. it's become it's evolved really it, it, sophisticated. In a yeah, way. and it's interesting, and it's actually created this like challenge. You know, great challenge for recipe writers and chefs to kind of accomplish all of that um, in the in this in this very kind of uh, prescribed, um, you know. Um, Undaunting fashion. Well, it's, you said something interesting. Last week we had uh, Joan Diagusau and Mary Nessel on, and I asked them what the biggest revolution was of food during their career and um, or lifetime. And Marion said it was the all of a sudden complete it was diversity availability. Of, yeah. of products and availability. And all of a sudden you can get a million ingredients. But it's interesting what you say, at least from the New York Times' archive, back in the 20s and 30s, there was a huge diversity of products? Like no, in the 19th a- century there was. And then in, oh, the, in the sort of like 1900 to about 19 through 1950, things were a little iffy. But it was also, it's unclear because the Times just wasn't writing as much about food. But certainly like... There were more serious you know, issues that they thought... Yeah, well, you know, the wars, Politics, and obviously, yeah. and then during the wars, there were a lot of um, recipes about sort of, you know, for rationing and all of that, but, you know, for instance, a stew in the 1950s would not have, you know, three different kinds of herbs in it, like we would just naturally do now. Um, they just, I think it was, 
maybe those herbs were available, but it wasn't certainly wasn't normal to be kind of like stocking your kitchen with all of them and kind of using them um, fluidly. So was that a kind of dead period for the book? The you know the drinks were really good. Oh. <laughs> no, yes, dessert, my parents yeah. can attest to that. <laughs> desserts have been always been great. Actually, desserts throughout um, and baking throughout. You know, like I think of the nineteen twenties. There's a fantastic crumpets recipe. Um, but um, but yes, r- food becomes way more sophisticated starting actually. Like I would actually say that like mid mid nineteen eighties through through now. What about like after the crash? Like the I was I wondering about go the decade by decade. I, I know, mean, me is too. That but allowed? I mean, well, we guys... I mean, we did sort of formulate a few questions for you, Amanda, and hoping that Andy would kind of chime in with a little context. Great. But like in the 1920s, after the crash, I should say after uh, probably 1930 on, we weren't in the war yet, but the country was entering the deep depression. What what did was the Times producing recipes then? Like and stone if so, soup or well, something. yeah, right. What what did they reflect? <laughs> um. There were very few recipes then. Um, really, I'm trying to think. Yeah. Um, well, how is your book? What, how is your book okay, so, organized? So the Let's book yeah, is and organized. Also, where did the recipes get published at the time? When is the food section a section in the Times? Okay, so in the 19th century, there was a section that was called the Household, and it was it's completely great and, and still very entertaining to read because people would send in their in questions about you know how to clean a carpet. Um, often how to care for their sick canary um, <laughs> and how to cook beef stew. And then the editors would just gather all of these um, replies from other readers and then basically kind of like publish them in a seemingly somewhat unedited fashion. In a so, column like Dear Abby, people could write in and you would yeah, get an answer it, from it the It wasn't so, Q, so much Q&A. It was more like they would... They would set, they would publish all of the like recipes and household tips, and then at the bottom they might have a few questions for the following week. But people also just volunteered stuff, you know. So it was kind so, of like Taste of Home that magazine exists yes. now, which yes. is like entirely reader. Exactly, it's entirely reader driven. They just write in all these recipes, and then the magazine just publishes. And them. where would it be published? In like the C section, or like I mean, where would one read about this? There's no internet, so it must have been in the actual. It was in the actual newspaper. paper, yeah. yeah. And I don't know exactly where it was placed, like week to week, but it was definitely like had its own kind of rubric and was marked off. And readers would sign their names, and sometimes it was just initials, and sometimes it said Brooklyn Cook, and other times it was mm-hmm. you know their full um, name. And you know there were people who were total regulars, like there was a woman named Aunt Addie who was an incredibly good cook and very competitive, and um, <laughs> would, would often try to like one up everyone uh, with her recipes. And the recipes, of course, then were incredibly rudimentary and uh, and um, involved a lot of sleuthing because they would say like you know they would never have an oven temperature. They might say cook in a quick oven, which mm-hmm. meant hot, and w- that depends on what you you think is a hot oven. Well, I, I guess it would depend um, on your equipment too. Because yeah. let's yeah. talk for a second about the technology. I just want to say on that in- same thing in medieval cookbooks, which I studied for uh, Barbara Kirschenblatt Gimblet's class, food studies, at performance studies at the Tisch School. Their recipes in medieval times were like the ty- cook, you know, capon for as long as it would take to walk, you know, around a field, right? Six <laughs> or seven times, a large field. But or it a small is field. it is the technology, and in other words, you wouldn't have uh, temperatures that are controlled in ovens that would have been available really until the 1950s. Prior to that time, they had little gauges on there, but the gauge might be off by as much as 30, 40, 50, 60 degrees. Wow. So consequently, almost all of the recipes up until really the mid 
uh, 20th century don't have the temperature down there because it doesn't really matter and you're a professional cook you know exactly what the temp and it says a quick oven you know exactly what that means if it's a slow you know exactly what that means and of course uh, if you don't have electric or if you don't have gas and you have wood which many or rural coal. Americans rural, which many rural Americans would have had up until World War II you mm. really have no way of determining that other than by your hand and by lots of other mm. mechanical means so. well this is absolutely fascinating we're going to take our 20 minute break but we're going to come back your and talk about break. I mean yeah our, our 20th minute break um, go 20 hours Let's and go uh, we're going to come back and talk about technology and uh, trends and decades and uh, basically American history yeah beauty Any idea what that was? Uh, you got me, honey. But um, I, I hate horror movies. The thing. It's Italian. It's Italian. It's Italian. A really La long Roberto Benigni movie. Uh, Suspiria. Suspiria. Nat, Nat's stumping you guys now. The easy ones. Well, are totally. I mean, thanks. You Nat. would stump me anyway, darling, because I really loathe horror movies. Life is altogether too scary in its reality for me to want to absorb anybody else's bad stuff into my subconscious. But um, anyway, <laughs> let's. <laughs> Come back. Um, this is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. Our guests today are Amanda Hesser, um, who is here to talk about her new book, The Essential New York Times Cookbook. And with her, we have uh, Professor Andy Smith from the New School, also a noted author and um, prolific author, I might add. The hardest work in seven the books. Business. He is. Oh and my now God. you might do an encyclopedia on. He's uh, doing an encyclopedia on drinking to be as, as a companion, but he's also. Are we allowed to say that? Andy, we'll, we'll, we're going to have to recap all of the books that you have in the pipeline right now because. I love you how you're amazing... giving us a lens into these times based on... I mean, it's a very interesting show so it's far. Great it's great to have... So yeah. where were we? Technology? Well, we were talking about technology. So Andy was saying that, you know, as Amanda pointed out, it was very hard to be specific about recipe writing. Um, it wasn't just uh, the temperature, though, that dictated the sort of looseness. But also, like, I remember reading recipes in older books where, you know, take a pony glass of well, something. That's, yeah, there was a you lot know, of that. There's no, like, you know, a fistful, a palmful, uh-huh. a pinch... Um, um, yeah, for, yeah, form into a thick paste. So you should, yeah. you needed to know what that meant. And they, they would never tell you what kind of pan to like bake a cake in. But I just want to make one note, which is that 
I I wrote the recipes, these old recipes that um, like I I had to sort of figure out how they worked. Yeah, ma- you know, make them and translate and them, then, into and then I wrote them into a modern recipe so that you you and I can make them. I didn't. Where did like, you, you know. Where did you do? In other it? words, did no guesswork. Provide now. you a test kitchen? Oh no, or? I just did it at home. At home? Yeah. So I how many <laughs> recipes did you test? Fourteen hundred. Wow. Yeah, there are fourteen hundred recipes. No, they're in your not. Book? They're about a thousand. Wow. And how is it divided again? Were you okay, about yeah, so, to answer that? Yeah, so it, it's a classic cookbook, like meal progression. So it starts with appetizer, soup, salads, all the way through dessert. But then... Do you have a cocktail section? It, yes, there is. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it's actually, people have really liked the cocktail section, of which I, I was, I'm glad they, they do, because um, I, I, the Times has had great uh, cocktails for a really long time. But so within each chapter, though, I organize the recipes chronologically. By so time. that yeah, so okay. that you could see the progression, so you could see how we went from you know blancmange in the 19th century to Bavarian cream to pot de creme to okay. panna cotta. Sorry, can and you did tell you me? have one of each thing, or would you have a you know the same recipe over you know 50 years apart? And sometimes, it would change? sometimes, sometimes it was like that. Like for instance, there are two eggnogs. There there are quite a few repetitions in gazpacho. I think there are like four four gazpacho recipes in the book. It's just because pe- readers recommended them, and you know clearly pe- we like a gazpacho we like our gazpacho and we like our cheesecakes and so i included several very you know iterations iterations and you could sort of see yes how you know we went from like this a cheesecake the first cheesecake has a crust actually on like an actual like pastry crust Hmm. it comes out of the oven looking like reblochon like that the big like a big wheel of cheese and it's delicious and fantastic i mean it has a top to it as well no no top all the way at the sides and it's not it's not a um crumb crust it's it's like a pastry crust right and then um you know, and then we move on to juniors, and then we decide, oh, we're going to put some mocha into the cheesecake, you know, and then, um, and then we're going to, you know, I put some goat cheese in there too, you know, and like you, so you could see how Ooh. we become more experimental, and then sometimes we we pull back and become more classic. But I I do love the sort of creams where we went from blancmange, which essentially is panna cotta, uh, but much more firmer and made with with is it milk. made with gelatin also? Yes, 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 really? and they would form it into molds, and then. You know, a hundred and you know, a hundred years later, hundred and twenty years later, really, we're back at that we're, same dessert with panna cotta with cream panna, and gelatin. Yeah, yeah. 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 Very good. And can I ask something personal about the cocktail? Is um, my mom always used to drink bull shots. Ooh, what are they? I, it's a meat broth, uh, like a bouillon cube in vodka, I think. And I always wondered why more well, restaurants make it with, don't uh, unite Campbell's the bar with beef the, broth or consomme. That's a, that sounds great. In fact, um, I, I can remember even them the being jellied. I could be wrong. But. Oh, wait, did, did it come from the Times? No, oh. the bullshot, I don't know, was just an established drink, I think. I think it well, was, but Andy, do you have though, any insight into that? Yeah. Because to me, I remember the bullshot being a jellied drink, even like you would use Campbell's consomme, which would jelly if you chilled it. And you'd put a shot of vodka in the bottom of that. It was kind of like um, that's 1950s. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, and, I, oh, go ahead. But, but what, what do they call it now when you do that? They call them Jello shots now, and they do it with with sweet. My mom was not popping Jello shots, Katie. <laughs> But it was, was, an it was the 1950s drink. equivalent of the Jello shot. I so swear to you. So back to the the technology. So the blender was one thing. Is the Cuisinart basically the same thing? Right. It's something that turns things into liquids and breaks things up. And, right? and can chop it up to more of a chopper. You know what chopper. I mean? That like whereas people sort of blend to kind of pure, really fully puree. How about the microwaves? Times? Yeah. 
That's another technology. Microwaves, yeah. I'll tell you, they, you know, there are certain to, things sort of that, came like, and went as, they were sort of like Teflon for the New York Times. Like, microwaves, they never yeah. really got into the microwave. They never Good really got them. into super processed foods. There was, like, some, there was a corn syrup period, and there was an evaporated milk period during the war. But they didn't really um, embrace In spite of Barbara Kafka. Of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who and I even, love. I mean, and, you know, and I loved her microwave book, but I mean, you know, it was really a flash in the pa- flash in the pan. Sorry to make it <laughs> flash in the Teflon. <laughs> so Andy's yeah, rolling his eyes at me. <laughs> that, that said, unfortunately, most of the food that we consume when we go out to eat is in fact microwaved. So it's fascinating. I to swear see. to you, you I had a microwave steak yes, out course. in Colorado. Yeah. I'm sorry. I swear to you. That someone served me a microwaved steak in a steakhouse called Earl's in Denver. <laughs> you hold, you're like holding it against them. You're like, I, Earl's, totally. do you hear that? Earl's. Earl's. Like, Earl's. I'm going to name names here. I'm Didn't name you once names. write a really critical thing of, uh, what was that, merchants or something? Just that oh. you did not like merchants. Yes, I did not like merchants. But, uh, <laughs> I remember. I went there I on the like, first date with my husband, yes. I'm surprised they were still in business after that article. <laughs> They got to see. You, though. They I mean, are like, still in business. Despite they my are, and they're they a chain. Yes. Oh. The, well, yeah. anyway, we're getting off subject. I mean, so I wanted <laughs> yeah. to talk about. So now the '30s, the Dust Bowl, the the Great Depression. Times just wasn't thinking about food, so therefore it was a dry spot for the book. I mean, you have no recipes. I think there are some like 1930s drinks. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to look. You know, there's a thousand recipes in here. And did they publish here, so cocktail like, recipes during um, Prohibition? No, no, right. no, no, no. But yeah, but th- th- that's no. where the problem comes up. The oh, problem doesn't come up during the depression. The problem actually comes up during World War One. And during World War One, you have all of these uh, very special types of recipes that I presume would have been published in the New York Times. And then you have prohibition that comes in immediately after World War One ends. And as soon as prohibition comes in, you have the end of sophisticated American cuisine. So it it goes on for and, until 1933, and then you have the problem of the Depression. And so, therefore, from the Depression, then you go to World War II. Yeah. So you have a period of almost 40 years when sophistication wow. in American cooking just isn't there. And so you begin to pick up um, life again at the end of World War II and you, mm. in the 1950s. Well, except so, so 1935, though, there's this great recipe for Ramos Gin Fizz. Huey Long... He uh, oh. he like wanted to like make some you know statement. So he, his his uh, his uh, method was to actually fly up to New York, get a whole bunch of journalists in a hotel, and then make them all a Ramos. And he actually flew up a bartender from from New and Orleans. Make and them make, all what? Make them all Ramos gin fizzes, oh. and then complain about politics and get his message <gasps> out. And it was just this great. Actually, there's a great photo in the book of him sort of shaking the Ramos gin fizz. But I that's mean, a fantastic you, story. Yeah, and then, and then of course, and then there were readers who wrote in and were like, "That his Ramos Gin Fizz is not the right one, and this is how you should make it." And you know, so there was a whole conversation around that then. Now, did people drink less during Prohibition, or the same, or less? I, I know this sounds shocking, but Americans actually drank a great deal less during Prohibition. Uh, you know, we have all this great image of people in cities, which was absolutely true of all going to. Uh, Speakeasies uh, and, and drinking and dining bathtub and, gin, but, but Americans during and after a prohibition consumed one fourth of the alcohol that they consumed beforehand. So really? there so was it did have an effect. It had a huge effect, even and, though we hear but, Al Capone. Has that, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, but, our, our 
image is Al Capone and our image is all of the problems, which were absolutely Moonshine, true. Moonshine, NASCAR but, was born but, from that period. But people were allowed to brew their own beer and, and make sure. their own wine. My, so, my grandfather made bathtub gin, of course. He yeah. locked Well, and my friend Rachel, was uh, her father was a bootlegger. She was a Russian Jew whose parents came over You could make it and for family consumption. It was totally legal. Yes. You, well, couldn't, he sold you couldn't sell it. it. Yeah, that, my great-grandfather so sold was, his, too. Yeah. She was bu- her family was busted, and they rolled the whiskey barrels out of yeah. their basement and broke them up in the street right but in that's, front of her house. That's city life. That's city that was life. City that's stuff. urban I'm life. I'm happy to know you were mingling with Jews up in New England. Your family. She's here in New York. Oh, okay. You were in New she York. She lives on 26th Street in the same apartment she's occupied since 1943. She's wow. 100 years old in February. <laughs> she's a living monument to history. She's an extraordinary human being. Wow. Um, yeah, I know. So, I just spent so, the weekend with her, so what, I'm all like, mm. <laughs> I on, on her too. <laughs> what was the long term effect, though? Like, are Americans still it's like still today? Still, I mean, still not you, drinking you, that much. There was a real problem with Americans and alcoholism prior to prohibition, and despite all of the negative things about prohibition that we can all agree upon, it really stopped many Americans from being alcoholic. So you have People were just today more than today again. It's the same percentage that when prohibition ended, one fourth. We're consuming about one fourth of the alcohol that we would have consumed prior to prohibition. But Absolutely Angie, didn't I learn in your course? Um, it must last be true year, then. Or year before, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That because water was yes. the water supply was questionable, so people tended to drink either hard cider or yes. beer or some other spirits. Uh, rather than actually drink water, that, that's and ab- that must have been a big. Contributor. That's absolutely true during colonial period and early early America. But in, from the 1850s on, everyone knew exactly where the problems were coming in from the water supply. The water supply was changed, and you had much improved sanitation. So from 1850 until you have the beginning of prohibition in 1920, you really do have um, a, a, a a good water supply that isn't a problem at all. People right. just liked alcohol. Well, when I, I mean, I grew up with um, the New, New Orleans Times Picayune Cookbook, and um, for among others, because my dad was from New Orleans. And when you look at the menus in old cookbooks like that, you often see that at breakfast, which as Amanda described was a, you know, heavily meat laden affair, even into the early 20th century, um, there was also often an alcoholic component to that meal. Everybody consumed alcohol at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, yeah. and in between nice. times, including. Men and women and children. I was born children. Yes. Wow. Absolutely true. What were the kids drinking, Jim? <laughs> no, the, the kids would typically have consumed hard uh, cider until oh. until the late nineteenth century, and then from that point on, it would have been any alcoholic beverage that they would have had available. Wow. That's extraordinary. So you think, you, again, there was a problem with alcoholism well, in America. Yeah. And despite all the negative things that we have about prohibition, there were very good reasons for it. Right. So I have a, a question about, um, well, I mean, that's interesting. We have I a mean, million I, questions. I never actually. knew. I never knew. <laughs> so uh, what foreign cultures most influence? I mean, are there the top two or three um, cultures or countries that influenced American cooking? I mean, is it Italians? Is it French? Is it Chinese? I mean, what well, do you, you know, what do we have a fascination with? To well, actually, I, okay, let me backtrack for a second. How long would it take before those big immigrant waves came into the United States, like the Italians, the Irish, or the Chinese? Well, not the Irish have had a big. Well, but they have. Um, but the Chinese, you know, how, how long did it take for those cuisines? Control to your penetrate? racist tendencies. Yeah. You're like the Irish had no effect. Well, I no, mean, I'm Irish, so I can get it. It seems like I, I don't, I mean, I, I'm, it probably varied, but 
it seems like it takes, you know, it took a couple of decades at least. I'm thinking of like in, 19, in the 1950s, you know, the time to this uh, piece on like, there's this cool thing called pizza. And we think it's going to become really popular. And <laughs> there are these people called the Italians, and this is how they make it. Um, and um, Were there raises back then on every street corner like they are today, raised pizzas in the 50s? When did that become a phenomenon? Oh, you would have had pizza in New York in the 19, about 1900, about 1910. Ten, you would have had common pizza parlors really? all over the place. Yeah. Okay. So, but but that's uh, not uh, not uh, typical of the rest of the country. So, and it wasn't a recipe that people would be eating. No, because it, it would have been a, a food to go. So you would have consumed it for breakfast, for instance. You would have gone there, picked up a couple slices, and taken it with you on your way to work. So it it, it would would not have been common in America until the 1950s. So <laughs> that's not at all unusual. You know, and I'm thinking also like so in the 19th century there were a lot of like kind of colonial dishes and you know. And actually, in the 1930s, another 1930s recipe that's in here, and it's really great, um, is an oyster curry, mm. a Sri Lankan oyster curry. Like, really? And it's very, actually quite sophisticated. Sri are everywhere. And you wouldn't think, like, <laughs> I, I mean, that's the kind of recipe that kind of barely makes it into the paper now. Um, yes, I'm quite surprised. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, so, that's so there, And then there were some, like, there were a little dabbling in Chinese cooking in the 50s and 60s. And, I would have thought there would have been tons of recipes for Chinese, like just fascination with no, the other. No, are really isn't like you know craig claiborne made an effort i feel like there have been chinese food is one of the things that i feel like still has just not like sunk in people have not embraced and i i'm not clear why because they eat it once a week exactly. no well, there's good reason for it and, oh, and that okay. is good and, and, please and, tell no, us no there, there, there are lots of discussions of chinese food in america beginning in the 1880s but it's something that's very dangerous and it considers the same thing as going to an opium den is the same thing as going to a chinese wow. food restaurant so there's a lots of negative associations with Which chinese. Is with the chinese so it really isn't or until is it I, the food is it something about the ingredients? Well, if you think it's, it's about the, how the Chinese were treated when the railroad was being built, right? Because it's really yeah. when the transcontinental railroad was being built that we brought in. The Chinese came the Chinese to New York. New York didn't arrive in New York until after the until pop. after the transcontinental railroad. But you really don't have a positive view of Chinese food until Nixon goes to China. And I know that sounds bizarre, no but from way. that from that point on, I was thinking that when you said the seventies, Craig Claiborne, I was like, that's exactly when Nixon yes, was doing all that ping pong diplomacy. Whether right, yeah. we like Richard Nixon or not, all I can do is simply say that he had a major impact on Chinese food. And from that point on, Chinese food became something special. And, of course, it had been in New York for uh, decades prior to that time. But it's uh, from that point on that it becomes something very popular and something yeah. something in at that point. So you really don't have until the 1970s. Yeah, I mean, there there is, like in 1949, a recipe that is in the book, and it's really a great recipe. It's called Oriental Watercress Soup, and it's a pork liver and watercress soup that was it was um, a story about a, a woman who had managed a Chinese restaurant in New York, um, and I was sort of delighted to find it was you know it had a couple of other recipes and they all seemed you know fairly like it had made an effort to be authentic and not sort of adaptive and mm-hmm. um, and um, but then you know then that that was about it for about another 15, can 15 I, years. Can I, can I raise another issue? Yeah. The first uh, sushi recipe that I found was really not until the 1960s. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that, did you find... I, I actually, the, I don't re, I don't remember uh, finding... It like was Craig first. Claiborne who goes, in fact, to Japan to find sushi recipes. Of course, they're served in America and they're served in New York prior to that time, but it's really this whole discovery of Japan and this whole re, uh, you know, the, the new uh, Ch- uh, Japanese um, um, economic 
economic power that comes in in the 60s and the 70s that begin to, to, to move Well, I think that that's the thing that, that's the great thing, one of the many great things I think that Craig Claiborne did, though, which is that he brought to food journalism this kind of enthusiasm and passion for new cuisines. And so he would do, you know, a Polynesian rest, you know, menu, and he would do a sushi thing, and he would do a, you know, um, an Austrian dinner. And he got people really excited about exploring because he was kind of there with them and he wasn't just, you know, just printing the recipes. He was sort of kind of, he was sort of packaging them for you and, and, and making them accessible. And I think that that actually really, yeah. And I think that really kickstarted that whole sort of like, let's discover the world through food in our own kitchens. Was it the New York times that like also set the standard for the words that people would use for recipes and the way recipes, their format that Americans, I mean, the times must've been one of the first national publishers of recipes. Yeah. Even though, isn't it the most commonly published thing in the world is recipe books. So wasn't it Eliza Acton who sort of established the the rest the ingredient list and then well the style that we have today is yeah. was certainly established uh, by Eliza Acton and then Fanny Farmer gets the credit in America oh I see uh, okay but, but there were lots of people before that that began to put measures in there that began to put temperatures in there and began to put other things there yeah so. you know and so that appears in the Times of the 1950s I I'm mean, glad you brought up Craig Clegoborn though because I wanted to talk about other major writers who had a big influence. Well, we should talk about that. We're at our 50. Okay. So I want to ask one last question just on the same theme, and then we'll open with that. And then we'll come back and talk about That's a great topic. Um, I wanted to ask, is Ellis Island and this island of Manhattan the gateway for all these recipes to the country, or I mean, 90% of them, or is that false and the Mexico and California and it's one big hodgepodge or did it come from Manhattan out like other things? I think Amanda has it right. It's 50 years after the immigrants arrived that in fact the recipes begin to appear in public like the New York Times and other places. So it may, may have been Ellis Island, but of course there were lots of other places that immigrants could come. But the the influence of most immigrants uh, on American cuisine really is not until the 1950s, and it's not until the 1960s that we recognize it. Hmm. So it's um it's a long time from the time that they arrive until the time that they're publicly recognized in in uh, in newspapers like the New York Times. So so we're going to cut to a break. Every time we mention Ellis Island, I always say it's fascinating. These people came from all over the world yeah. by boat by cow by car you know whatever not car i mean a long time and they all settled within 500 feet of where they landed it was so crazy that they never not all of them but yeah. well most most a lot, st- a lot. stayed within two miles of of that, that of where they got until off the 14th street really yeah. Yeah, yeah i mean well it just seems that way i mean millions mm-hmm. and millions of people stayed in the island. I mean, yes, I'm sure but 10, millions 15. of people went out to like the Dakotas. I mean, that's why you have the big uh, Scandinavian populations out there. And I forget the statistic, but a majority stayed uh, no under 14th right. Street. I wouldn't dream know, which, of disagreeing with you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Can I mention another cookbook? In, yes. In addition to this wonderful book of Amanda Hesser's. <laughs> Uh, one Big Table by oh, yeah. Molly O'Neill. It's She's going to come on. And it's, oh, yeah. it's going to be, um, the release party is scheduled for November 4th on Ellis, Ellis Island. Island. And oh, I think great. that's yes. wonderful. Yeah. Yes. 
And we're donating some stuff to that and support Molly's. Heritage Foods USA is is part of that whole As we are with, if ever tour. you need anything, if some sustainable pork. I don't know if you have any red bottle pork recipes in there. But we'll we, take a break. We're sponsored by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Engineered by uh, Nat, Nat Wiener. Wiener. And produced produce. by Jack Inslee. And yeah. our guests are Andy Smith and Amanda Hatzer. And we'll be back in just a few seconds. on Heritage Radio Network. We're broadcasting out of the back of Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my co-host, Patrick Martins, and our guests today are Amanda Hesser, uh, talking about her fabulous new book, The Essential New York Times Cookbook, and uh, Professor Andy Smith from The New School, also a noted author and serious food historian. Um, thanks again, both of you, for being here with us. And um, so we're let's pick it up again and talk about, um, since we brought up Craig Claiborne, who were the other most influential uh, food writers that The Times picked up uh, over the last, I don't know, I guess, well, whatever, throughout the history of your book? Amanda. Well, I mean, the beauty of the Times is that so many um, great writers and cookbook authors and chefs' work has been has passed through the pages of the Times, and so like I tried to sort of distill that into this book. And so some of them were you know infrequent, but had a great influence. I mean, I think of somebody like Paula Wolfert, who's just you know she's just a a a great um, cookbook author, um, great food expert, and just. You know, having her recipes in the Times is, has kind of, um, I would say, raised the bar. It's definitely raised the bar, um, and and so I think you know, like Alice Waters has recipes in there. You know, Tom Clicchio, Jamie Oliver, Nigella Lawson. You can go sort of on and Mario on. Mario Batali, sure, Mario Batali, yeah, sure. Um, um, Fergus Henderson, um, you know, Eric Repair, Thomas, had tons yeah, of Thomas Keller, like, yeah, I mean, they did the chef column for, you know, a, a, a yeah, decade ages, or so, yeah. and, and so, so many great, um, chefs have had their work, you know, kind of, um, put on a platform there for, for, um, you know, a couple weeks at a time. And so, um, but in terms of like the, the sort of staff writers, you know, Craig Claiborne marched in in the 1960 or actually late fifties. And he really kind of um, 
increased the tempo <laughs> of the food pages and made them this must read every week. And then, you know, he brought along his friend Pierre Frenet, who had been um, the, the chef at Le Pavillon, the famous restaurant. And the thing that was great about Pierre is that, you know, Craig was creative and whimsical and Pierre was very um, precise. And they made a great team. And practical. Yeah, practical. And his recipes are amazing because they really hold up. Because he never said one medium tomato. He said one cup of chopped um, tomato, half inch dice. And so everything works still. And he really, um, you know, it's it's a real skill, to, especially when you're a chef, to be able to kind of write recipes for a home cook. Yes. And he had the knack, which was just he knew how to um, get people to try new things and push um, uh, push them a little without frustrating them or overwhelming them or, or you know, intimidating them. And um, and so his 60-minute gourmet column was, was you know, really, if you think about it, the precursor to the minimalist. He was the, the first Rachel Ray. He was the first minimalist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My mother was like an unbelievable devotee of the Times um, cookbook recipe, I mean, the Times recipes. And I have three, my legacy from her is three, count them, three binder notebooks full of recipe clippings, largely from the New York Times, did, and many of them by Pierre Frenet. Wow. Did you include the story about Pierre Frenet and uh, Craig Claiborne going to Paris on their American Express uh, winnings and eating the $4,000 meal? You know, I didn't, but of course that's a great, that is a great story. Those, those are the good old days. Those were the good old days. <laughs> um, yeah, that's when media had a budget. Yeah. No, yeah. He, won, he won this in a contest. They no actually way. bid for it, and they oh, bid for great. it from American Express, and they won. They won this, and so it was a, a meal for two in Paris at the at the restaurant of your choice. And right. so, Craig Claiborne actually wrote the whole article up, and it received huge negative comments yeah. from people saying, hey, "What are you doing eating a four thousand dollar meal?" Did you get that same criticism when you won the Heritage Ham at the Culinary I won the Heritage (laughs) Last Tuesday, I won the Heritage Ham, and I'm going to receive it next week. His Twitter's exploded with negative comments. I look forward... No, it was positive comments. It was say, we look forward to seeing how you're going to... To being invited to your house. Yes, everybody wanted to come to my home to eat it. (laughs) Yeah, so when is my invitation coming? (laughs) Uh, Monday, it will come uh, after the ham has been consumed. And Amanda, you have an event coming up on Tuesday. On Tuesday, actually, yes. do at, you want to talk at, about yes, that for a that second? Would, yes, I do. I do it. So it's at Chelsea Market yep. at seven p.m. There are twenty great chefs, and it's a party for um, the New York Times Cookbook, uh, and but also Melissa Clark's A Good Appetite or right. in the Kitchen with a Good Appetite. And it benefits, and it benefits a group that we've had here on the show, w- yep. Wellness in the Schools, absolutely, uh, which Bill Telepan is a big that was part a good of. Show. And that was one of our first that was a great show. Shows. Yeah, yeah. And, well, wait, uh, you had a couple more questions before we get into the final things. I mean, first of all, James Beard did he have a big influence on this cookbook? So there are a couple of James Beard recipes in here. Um, one is called Onion Rings, which apparently he supposedly got from a bordello in Paris. Um, what was you know James what Beard doing in a bordello? That's, that <laughs> well, stretches the bounds there. It was a boy's dello. <laughs> yeah. A boy dello. Um, so onion, onion rings are, um, are little onion sandwiches. 
They're little little Ooh. tea sandwiches that are that are you you um, caramelized onions. No, no, you just no sliced onions, um, and then in um, and mayonnaise, and then you cut them into a circle and you rub the out the the rim with mayonnaise and then and then roll it in par- parsley so they look like these little green. Oh, I I green did buttons. that for many years yes. as a caterer. They're fantastic. Believe me, tea sandwiches with the butter on the yeah. outside and yeah. the Belgian parsley. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, I yeah. That sounds great. Oh my god. And um, and also his forty his chicken with forty cloves of garlic, which is a, a real classic that's a great recipe i have made it a million times <clears throat> yes me too and julia child julia child actually there's i think just one recipe why is her. that that's so interesting did yes. they were they jealous or competing with the times I, or andy do you know this because i wondered this myself she really I very infrequently appeared in the new york times whereas you know everyone else uh, like made a heater marcella hazan maybe they're a little bit later but you know craig claiborne really discovered them and cultivated their uh, their fame really, um, but yes, her creme caramel, which is superb from mastering the art of French cooking, appears. So, in was there politics yeah. involved in who the Times would like, and they're like, we don't like her, or we don't like him, or would they just uh, a vehicle for information, you know, without uh, you know thought? Well, I mean, I think it's impossible to say that like a, a, you know any publication doesn't have its own. It's you know. Um, um, it's favorites or people who you know maybe are unconsciously ignored um, right. but no I mean I think the time sees it has it feels a great responsibility to kind of distill the food news of the day mm-hmm. um, and to say you know kind of make by publishing stor- their stories kind of making a statement that's, that says you know this this matters we this think matters. this we think this matters and we, we think you should pay attention to it too but, but there are great articles in the New York Times not recipes about from Clay, uh, Craig Claiborne for instance talking about Julia Child and, yeah, so not uh, always the recipes and, and it's saying very nice and positive things I mean he had wonderful comments about the art of French cooking when it came out in 1962 right. so, or 61 so all I can do is say he, the articles are there even if the recipes aren't, it's, but it's strange that like she sort of wasn't asked to do things for the times, or or maybe she wasn't. She, she was said simplified. No, I don't know. She was simplified French cooking, and I yeah. think that's a problem because Craig Claiborne comes on as the professional who's been trained in Switzerland on French cooking and and comes to America and is the expert on it. Mm-hmm. And he, at, at least in the 1960s, is is the expert at the New York and Times. And Pierre Frenet, a decade later, Frenet, right? Frenet Same comes thing. in, etc. And yeah. by that time, Julia Child had become a media star. Are, which yeah. neither neither Craig uh, Claiborne nor or Pierre, Pierre Fernet were, yeah. and so consequently, I think that there was some there was some jealousy that was behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. But at least at the beginning, Craig Claiborne was extremely positive towards Julie Child. Well, two last questions, real quick. Did the later recipes involve sourcing, like go to your farmer's market or make sure it's a specific type of tomato, or was that always the the case? You mean or? the older recipes were they <clears> like that? Well, or? the very the very old ones, like get a Newton Pippin apple. Because that's the best yes, one. I mean, sometimes breed they did. Specific or... Yes, occasionally. Um, it was, but it, it was kind of random because, of course, these were all came from readers. So it depended on how um, specific they wished to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, for just regular listeners out there who Google cookbooks or you know know about this show, what makes this cookbook different from others? I mean, obviously, I think I know the answer to it, but what does this offer to the pantheon of cooking books uh, that that you know? Maybe well, I think it's like <laughs> if I should, could, could say unmodestly, I think it, you know that if you are if you want one book that really has everything from classic all the classics to you know really great 
uh, modern recipes to, um, you know, recipes from all the sort of important writers and chefs um, over a 150 year period. It's, it's all in here. Wow. It really well, it is also, a distillation of our, of our food culture, really. It's, it's, that's what I was going to say. It sounds like it's, it's a way to look at American history through food uh, to a large extent because there must be some contextual, you know, layering in in each chapter. As you, as, you, as you show a recipe, you must be showing something about where that person came from or, yes, no, or I, why I, it yeah, was I, included. I mean, that is what I really spent a great amount of time doing was mm-hmm. – why does this uh, explaining why this recipe belongs in here? What's interesting about it, and why we should still be making it? And if you're going to make it, you know, uh, he, uh, here's a variation you could do. Or if you don't have the pan, it calls for here's another one. So I kind of I I sort of saw my role as the tour guide to yeah. help help you. And last it. question: This is an interesting question that you mentioned to me a hundred times. I mean, the changing role of the woman of women in the home. Like how how did the recipes reflect the? Ch- <laughs> That's a tough one. <laughs> it is a tough question, but I mean, is it, it is more an interesting female, idea. It's uh, like after the war, after World War II, and women were entering the workplace more and more, how did the recipes reflect uh, less time in the home for the female population and become more sort of what we see now today, which is the 30-minute meal or well, the I think that was, quick fix meals yeah. or whatever the Food Network is promoting you know, at the current time? Of- I think very clearly the 60-minute gourmet was the sort of, you know, very kind of bald acknowledgement of that like that 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 people didn't have as much time but they still wanted to eat well um and that they were um going to you know rely on pierre to kind of think cleverly for how to do so um and then over time i think that what you start seeing is you start seeing things that are like more like projects and you know like sort of weekend things and you know this this which just isn't so much about like women in the workforce but it's more like about men and uh, getting into the kitchen and 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 the and food being this real fascination. This is something that you become um, you can become an expert at, and that you um, that there's kind of there is um, that that is a good thing. That it's not just about the labor. It's really about like food is cool, and yeah. you should know how to make a cassoulet. Well, when did, I ate it three food, times when did food become cool in the sense? That we that we see it as a as a cultural phenomenon today. Do you think that was with the rise of the Food Network? Was it with the Star Chef phenomenon? Was it the Anthony Bourdain and and Kitchen Confidential? <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. Yeah, no, or the really, birth of it really starts food. in the 1960s, and it starts with Craig Claiborne and Pierre Frenet. I mean, those are the males that come along and say food is cool. Males can do this just as well as women right. can. And yeah. then obviously the Food Network in the uh, uh, 1990s, um, and and you had this huge shift between. Uh, you know, from a female occupation to a male, it's okay for males to to cook in the kitchen right. as well. You're so not, I think, yeah, I think I think you're that's not betraying huge, your masculinity yeah. if you can, and you know, we should make really a pie crust. Stay. Be- I mean, we should really go because I mean, she needs to. Amanda has her kids here, and everyone needs to do different <laughs> things. I have one last question. It's one oh six, so we we have really pushed you guys. Um, I wanted to ask in terms of budgets. Just I'm always fascinated by this. Did they say here are 5,000 recipes, we want about a thousand, and here is ten thousand dollars, and you can go and buy it. Like, 
how does one budget for such a vast thing? Because everything needs to be tested. So yeah. Oh, well. Is it by um, recipe of $4 a recipe or you go buy skirt steak? Oh, you mean how when I went for with my Yeah, when publisher? you were making Like your if someone's going to make a cookbook at home and they're like, how how will it work if they get picked up? Or? Oh, well, I wish I had done the math um, because that would have been smart. <laughs> I would have asked for a different <laughs> amount. A different amount. Um, Did you end up shelling out a lot of your own money, I bet? Oh, just yeah. I mean, this is a very expensive. I mean, I, over six we tested years, recipes I bet for, four, a, for five yeah. years, yeah. you know, and just the amount of, uh, and then alone? that doesn't count the right. No, no, no. With Meryl Stubbs, who is my partner in Food Fifty Two, okay. and which um, is your food blog, yeah, food, yeah, yeah. food site, and um, no, we cook together. Um, <laughs> I couldn't, and, and uh, yeah, we and for four to five years, and then and then I, there was the writing and the research, and I mean, it's just endless. I mean, so mm. it, it's a labor of love. For sure. Yeah, and I mean to put on. I mean, I don't know. Our, our viewers cannot, our listeners cannot see Amanda, but she's three hundred pounds plus. I mean, this is <laughs> she's really sacrificed her health for uh, all this for recipe everybody's testing. everybody's well-being. Yes, That's I right. suffered for you. <laughs> but it's a wonderful cookbook, and everybody should buy it. And, and, a, and a you reminder, used Andy a little uh, bit, no, right? No, I mean, a he's ton. a very useful uh, he resource. He was an incredible. Incredibly valuable resource. Andy I, I is bugged amazing. him for years and years. Always call, emailing him late at night and calling, and always getting with, a response. With, I'll bet. Yes, totally. Yeah. He's never not yes. at his computer. I've noticed, but that's because some, some he's people, the hardest some working people man have to in the do business. Some work. <laughs> so, how do people buy the? I mean, is there a website or a blog? Fifty. I mean, tell us they about you, the, So you can come to Food Fifty Two, and it's on there, and that's Food Fifty Two Food Five Two dot com, or you can go to Amazon, you can go to Borders, you can go to your local bookstore, and go to it, do your event at Chelsea Market yes. on November seventh. I hope you will. Starting I hope to see you o'clock. there. What's yes. your favorite independent bookstore in the city? Kitchen oh, Arts and Letters? Will he have it? Will Knock well, Waxman have it? Knock yes. Waxman has it. I yeah. hope he does. Yeah. Good. And, and, Andy, and I like and, um, The Strand, of course. Andy has books coming out in the next few months. I was hoping you'd ask. I <laughs> know. I mean, it's not like you've been sitting back and Well, you uh, have a whole other segment you're welcome to stay for. I was hoping I was hoping you'd ask. But let's 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 just give a quick recap Top you seven have a potato books. book coming out. You have I do. I the have Encyclopedia a, a, of a book called Potato out. a Global History and yes. I have a book called Starving the South. How the North oh, now won that's the Civil gonna be War. Very interesting I, and I, very controversial. I loved that book. You're coming I on for that. I that book. I was hoping Promise you'd ask me. that too. So Promise. That's great. And when is I, that I coming out? That's in April. It's not right? coming out till April. Right? Yeah, yeah. But we, I hope we, we'll be seeing you before then. In any case. Yeah, so, um, Andy is interested. What now, day do you want me again? I don't. Now know. he just Next jogs over. No. <laughs> Before I was like, how am I going to get there? And now he just runs. Andy, it is never not fun to have you on. And Amanda, same thing. Oh, I what hope a great show! You guys are a great again. team together because, yeah. um, you know, yeah, because you're both very knowledgeable about American food history. It's just delightful. we'd like to do the Amanda and Andy show. Is that possible? Yeah, talk to Patrick. He can make it happen. Well, I'm I sure it was a huge honor for me. you guys. <laughs> that's pretty much the theme. He's like, no, that's not. That's I do the same thing. And Patrick corrects me. So we're going to um, we're going to take, take a, a break, break and, and come, uh, back come back with Thomas and uh, whoever Thomas. else wants to stay. And he's going to talk about international cuisine in the form and of sushi. sushi. Thank you both very much.
Well, we are back. Wow, what an amazing couple of people. I mean... Wait, Patrick, did you know that song? Oh, uh, that was Halloween. Ten points. Ten points. So that's an A, even though I did not get the first eight that you did. Well, I mean, what a fascinating, fascinating show. I mean, Amanda Hesser, 150 years of New York Times recipes. And Andy Smith, who contextualizes absolutely everything. I mean, he really knows. What a resource. He's like a, a Google, a walking, living Google. Totally. He's worth, you know, look for his books in bookstores and on Amazon. Yeah. He's and just, Andrew Smith. Andrew Smith. He's a professor at the New School. I took his class a couple of years ago in... Um, you know, sort of food history, basically. Did you sit in? You said, I'm doing it for food arts. No. You paid? <laughs> I paid. Through the well, nose, by so the I way. Love, we go from uh, American, because uh, one of the things they said is that sushi was not written about in a national publication in America until the 1970s. I was actually surprised by that, because frankly... I think there was so much anti-Japanese sentiment in the United States post-World War II that it took well, a to really day, long time for I have to seen die out. a cooking show on absolute... I mean, a cooking classes and slow food classes and French Culinary Institute classes on every food in the world. Yak cheese. Almost never sushi or sashimi or how to pick or how but to I make it. But I saw a three-hour class at the French Culinary Institute on making rice. Oh, really? With the Japanese. And they had brought in this unbelievable selection of Japanese chefs. This was an amazing experience. These guys, because rice is such a fundamental part of the Japanese food culture, they had actually caused to be made, at the cost of $5,000, a glass vessel in which you could literally watch the rice grains plump up. It was unbelievable. And then I sat with these Japanese dudes and I learned the differences between kaiseki cooking and contemporary Japanese Mm -hmm. foods and sushi. And I mean, it was incredible. Well, we have an expert here and this man is really (laughs) studying. And you're American. I mean, when I, Philip Gilmore um, from uh, Momo Sushi Shack. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, when I first met you here at Roberta's, I knew you were a Japanese uh, food expert. I just sensed it. No, actually, it's the opposite. I did did not know that. How did that First happen? First of all, I'm not a Japanese food expert. Uh, but I mean, you're a sake expert. I, I, I know a lot about sake, yeah. Sake. Okay. Uh, expert, expert is a... Do you like to drink sake? Is that why? I love why? sake more than anything. Is that right? I, I tell people that... Uh, rice juice. Yes, rice juice. I tell people that uh, that uh, before I drank cold sake, that uh, I, when, when I started drinking cold sake, rather, I realized that I didn't really love red wine or whiskey that much. Huh. But, what? I mean, I like... I, I, I could drink sake every day. I, I love them a lot. It, and, and I also tell people that it's, uh, it's uh, cold sake to me is like uh, orange juice or chocolate milk or cold water. So you would advocate drinking it for breakfast the well, way yeah. no, 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 Americans I, no. The way they did in the 1890s. <laughs> no, no, in the, sense, in the sense that sake to me is so delicious that it's just a, a nice added benefit that it does have alcohol in it, but I actually... <laughs> Like when I drink it, it's like delicious to me. Wow, yeah. that is awesome. So, um, tell me about the beginning. Of, first of all, this neighborhood right around Roberta's is a cultural revolution happening as we speak, and you know it hasn't lost any of its coolness. And now you're adding to it significantly by opening one of the best sushi restaurants. How cool is that? Now, explain to us a little bit how your place differs for instance you have a couple role model restaurants that Mm -hmm. you looked up to i mean tell us a little bit about the history of 
Well, I uh, I started working at Bozu in Williamsburg, which has uh, been there for about seven years now, and uh, and uh, the, the the kind of uh, some people say about Bozu that it's actually more more famous in Tokyo than it is in New York. Uh-huh. Like, there's people from the UN there, and you know, people from you know you know every sake you know master and owner because they have an amazing sake list there? not only an amazing sake list but it's all japanese and it's uh-huh. uh you know and so i started working there and and i worked there for about three years and that's how i got into japanese food and cuisine and sake okay. and what were you doing there uh, i was basically like the head waiter okay you know um i was one of two non-japanese people working in the whole how cool. do you speak japanese uh a little bit. Ohio goes <laughs> so you've yeah. obviously gone to Japan now. No, oddly enough, I have not. You've never been to the I, mother load there. Yeah. <laughs> wow, but that's obviously in your future. Oh my God, yeah, so much. Yeah. You know, uh, I kind of have a rule that I don't go to a country unless I know like at least ten or fifteen people there. And right. Four years ago, I'd know nobody there. Now I know. So now, now you're now you're moving up. Yeah. If okay. someone says, "Oh, I go to an American restaurant. I went to an American restaurant. American restaurant." Like when you say a Japanese restaurant, a Japanese restaurant, a Japanese restaurant, there are differences, right? Of How course. and where and in oh, what I mean, way. you know, well, I mean, it, uh, I think in Japan and and even in New York, you'll you'll find uh, you know people that just do udon or just do ramen or just of do course. sushi. Uh, uh, Bozu and also the restaurant next door, Momo Sushi Shack, uh, kind of differs because we kind of mix it up a little bit because I think, you know, it's kind of fun. We, I, either of the restaurants, uh, we don't take the food. We t- they take the preparation seriously, but they don't get too, like, caught up in, caught some, up in the, yeah. you know, it has to be this way. And, you know, we know that... Uh, it's very accessible because you know we know you know the tastes of the people in New York and even this neighborhood and also Williamsburg, I think are pretty sophisticated. Who's you know? your chef? I mean, uh, Makoto Suzuki. That's, and so, how did he? How did you get him to jive with your philosophy on uh, food philosophy? Well, I, 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 it's more me doing it with his food philosophy. He's he's okay. he's the head chef, and you know he's he's hardcore Japanese, and he's been doing it forever. And uh, um, when I was working at Bozu and Roberta's first started out, if you remember, I worked here for about six months. And I always remember your Pan Am shirt. Oh, yeah. I, I, I would love for you to bequeath that to me. I will. I, I'll I outlive you. That was actually a prototype. Uh, Pan Am, uh, uh, start, you know, since it's not an airline anymore, they started branding it. Oh. And so I actually had uh, a waiter at Bozu was an intern for the fashion startup company that I don't think went anywhere. Mm. So that shirt actually was one of the prototypes. Oh, wow. I love it, Pan So in your food, in your restaurant, um, which you should reiterate the name, by the way. Momo Sushi Shack. And it's uh, It's, uh, No, it's actually on Borgart. It's 43 Bogart. Okay, good. Um, So let's let's talk a little bit because Japanese food does tend to be so sort of ritualized in a way. Mm -hmm. Like there's the kaiseki... Yeah, cooking and there's the you know I mean I don't know very much about Japanese cooking but as I said I attended this this seminar at the FCI which just gave me a whole new insight into how the Japanese view food. So you guys, when your chef creates his product, uh, you know he must have some kind of very serious uh, underlying philosophy towards that. And I'm I, wondering, I, kind of, even though he's catering to this you know neighborhood taste or whatever. Like, what is his underlying discipline? Because it think, is a discipline, right? I think, I think that he, he, he really has uh, tried to bring Japanese food to the neighborhood in a way that's accessible to everybody, but with also, without, like, being uh, too accommodating to the American taste. It's right. not about, right. like, you know, deep fry everything and pour mayonnaise on it. Would but you also, have the Philadelphia <laughs> cream cheese roll? That seems like a caterer well, okay, and okay. it's in every ca- Japanese ca- restaurant. Case in point, case in point. Our, we have a Philly roll. And so uh, we're we're kind of focusing on a lot of you know we're trying to do you know I'm not you know we don't 
say that we're an organic and you know uh, you know uh, local restaurant. I but am we, going to ask you about your sources after uh, this. Oh my God, don't do it. <laughs> um, uh, no, but what like even like the uh, come on like Green the, Stewardship Council, right? Mm, yes, of course. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, like the Philly roll we have here. Uh, oh, back up, back up, back up. Uh, we're we're really trying to focus on vegan and vegetarian food. Because not, not only the neighborhood, but also too, if you if you Does analyze, fish but not fish count is not that. vegan. F- fish, but but we're focusing on a lot of vegan and vegetarian options for two. Is that reasons. what Bushwick is demanding? No, but there are a lot of vegan vegetarians in this okay. neighborhood, and also too, if you if you know anything about Japanese cuisine, there's so much vegan vegetarian food because you know, especially in the countryside, it's not like they're eating right. fish and beef every day. It's mm-hmm. it's all about vegetables. It's all about yeah. I want to ask you parenthetically: Is there like a region that. of Japan that you most concentrate? on or no it's pan japan it's pan japan but you know definitely a little bit tokyo okay uh-huh. back to the philly roll though yeah let's go back to um, the philly roll so, i'm fascinated so by we that. actually do a um a philly roll and it's uh uh, you know, it's we use Scottish salmon or whatever. But uh, instead of cream cheese, we actually he does a pressed tofu. He takes silken tofu and presses it for oh, a few okay. days, wraps it in paper towels and presses it. I so, like that. So I've it done almo- that myself. Yeah, and it gets almost to a cream cheese texture. And then yes. he actually uh, he uh, he makes it. It's like a spicy uh, cream cheese that's vegan. He puts wasabi in it. Uh, no, actually, I, I, it's uh, it's something called yuzu kosho. Which so is, yuzu, I think of yuzu lemon. Yeah, it's the yuzu lime. Different? It's the Japanese lime. Mm-hmm. And uh, what they do, they put uh, koji, I believe, which is uh, koji's the the mold that you know they do with you know the sake rice, and uh, and then also salt and pepper, and they just put it in wooden barrels, and it breaks it down. A lot of black peppers because it's very spicy. So it's a right. yuzu salt and pepper, oh God, and it, it and it's delicious. so delicious. Oh. When I tasted that for the first time, it blew me away. But it's but, unfortunately wrapped in seaweed, right? Um, it is that's a deal breaker for oh, me, man. No. Why you don't eat seaweed? Hate it. In my movie that I'm writing, seaweed is a has a critical component. I have a whole, you know, as you know, I have an Ahab complex, which yeah, is a term why? that I learned from uh, actually somebody at the Food Network who because he hates fish dislike. too. Yeah, he ate a fish because he could never catch the whale. That's right, and I, I too, I don't. Uh, it's not that I'm trying to catch the whale, but you I just hate fish. I, I love don't it. Like that's those so cool. briny flavors. How often do you eat meat, Katie? Five times a week? No. Four? Maybe three. Six? Really? Yeah. You think it's bad if someone eats meat six times a week? Not if that's what you're craving. Okay. Patrick, how I many think times some a day people's do you eat bodies meat? Well, we were just on it. the New York Times guys were saying Andy Smith, the professor, and then Amanda Hezer, meat was breakfast. Yeah. You had lard, oh, yeah. you had bacon, you had all that stuff for but that first meal at 6 you were working in fields. I mean, you needed a big protein and, cal- and uh, carb buildup to be able to get out. I mean, you're eating breakfast at four in the morning. Potatoes. And you're working out, yeah. And you're working out in the fields until noon, so that's like six, seven hours of hard labor. So how would you define this um, you this need, neighborhood as having changed over the couple of years? Because you were here from I've been early. here. I've been in this neighborhood for eleven years. Wow. Yeah. So tell us about the, the 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 history of a neighborhood and its transformations. Well, my first apartment that I uh, lived in was about um, maybe about a half a mile from here, maybe even like seven blocks. It was on Wilby and Wilson. And when I moved there, that was considered probably top two or three worst neighborhoods in the United States. Because people were killing each other. Oh on the yeah, it's just you know every you had night a lot of mis- drug traffic there. Oh, tons of drug trafficking, yeah. uh, and uh, and I think that with uh, Williamsburg getting hip and people moving in from the city it it kind of uh, the rent prices went up in Williamsburg and it slowly moved out here okay and and I mean this neighborhood specifically it's so industrial but you have all these amazing empty buildings and it's just it's just you know three thousand dollar a month lofts waiting to be developed so I think that's what 
And also, too, you have the L train one block away. Yeah, yeah that's the L train important. is awesome because it really works now. Well, tell us, um, I mean, a, a quick a website, I mean, how to get there. So, I mean, people get to your restaurant by, and if they get into biggest... the back few cars of the L, like the back half yeah. of the L train, they get out of the L. They on the Morgan right. stop, they make them on the Morgan stop. They get off at the Bogart exit on the Morgan Bogart stop. Harrison Place, and yeah. you go one block. You go one your block, restaurant. And, and then you're there. Yeah, beauty. And it overlooks the street. And uh, what's the price point? Uh, the price point is anywhere per person. Right now, we're waiting on our uh, beer and wine license. Oh, brother! B- b- by the way, if I can make a a, a plea to the world, uh, I've had my liquor license since, or my beer and wine license since January mm-hmm. of this year. And I still don't actually physically have it because I don't have a CFO and it's a complete nightmare. So if anybody out there listening is friends with the mayor or friends with the borough president, <laughs> please contact me. I will buy you lots of sushi. I need my, I need my license immediately. Do you have like a $500 free sushi if you get me? Oh my God. Why won't they give it to At you? Least, I don't understand. Right? Because right now with the, uh, the State Liquor Authority, you need a CFO or a temporary CFO or a uh, letter of no objection. And... And I can't get and that. who would only... object to sake and sushi? I don't understand. <laughs> sake and sushi. I know. It's unbelievable. It's a beautiful thing. And um, it's been very full. It was funny. When I first came in, When I mean, obviously, when you first opened. Uh, first of all, it has no windows or anything like no. that. So if the door is closed and yeah. the cold, like, yeah. you really have to. It's like a We're trying to be kind of. Pe- yeah, we're looking for kind of like a closed tavern vibe. Uh-huh. Well, um, so uh, Philip Gilmore, the owner of um, uh, of Momo. Sushi Shack. Yes. And um, yeah, it's really a great place. It's nice to see it full, and you know, all good places get full and stay full. And it's nice to have seen it packed the f- few times I've left work and yeah. uh, see your place. Well, I, re- I really appreciate uh, all that you've done. Well, I hope <laughs> you'll come back and talk to us some more I in, would. The, in I would. the next six months. Let yeah, us know yeah, I was what talking to Patrick. And... I, uh, I, I'm really immersed in the sake world, so I know so many. We should do a tasting so... on air. Oh, I would love that. And I but can you know what bring... else is we should recommend um, to Jimmy Carbone at Beer Sessions? to oh, do yes. a sake show yeah. yes and uh, maybe you so come cool. on and do a beer so i'm sure there are japanese beers because in that japanese world beers are probably. really great as oh well. man there's so, so many that's a, a great show the on the heritage they radio like network their alcohol yeah, yeah. <laughs> they do <No>. yeah <laughs> well what a great show katie i mean i'm really really proud of the bookings today and and that was you Thanks, our best shows you've done you've booked i do try hard <laughs> and um, what, what do we have next week? We actually have no idea who I we have. I can't remember. I, think I know it's we something have something about Obamas or something like the two daughters are going to come on. Uh, and talk Sasha about and Malia. Their... Yeah, we're in, we're in negotiations <laughs> we also... with their uh, grandmother. And yeah. uh... <laughs> Sasha Malia would that would be a that hot, would be an awesome yeah, be show. Amazing. We will in December be having the kids who won the um, Teen, Teen Iron Chef, Chef contest battle. that we. Ooh. Uh, Including that one kid who deserves a TV show in, immediately. Uh, judging, yeah. So what that's going to happen name? in December. There's that one kid who absolutely was. I don't recall his name, but he was marvelous. He was absolutely he marvelous. Watched a lot of Food Network shows, and he really showed it. And I want to congratulate uh, Jack and Nat for having pulled together a kind of adjusted new homepage. It's basically still the homepage, but now it has all these Twitter updates and. For instance, a Twitter update is that the next show, at 2, is called Cutting the Curd, and it is inviting caller-ins or drop-by visitors to talk about horror cheese stories. It's amazing what happens when you put a gun to our heads. How can be a horrible cheese story? Cheese is nothing but good. No, there are all these horrible cheese stories. Like, have you ever heard of Cheese Mites? 
or that <laughs> Sardinian cheese maggots. with maggots running through it. Come on, Katie. Are we supposed to eat that? Do you have a... We drink mezcal with a worm. I mean, do you have a craft uh, version, too? I Are happen you... to love craft American singles. I'm very sorry to say that. There is nothing better in certain... You know, in certain iterations, a grilled cheese sandwich or a quesadilla with Kraft American singles is a fine, fine thing. Have you ever read Tropic of Cap- uh, Capricorn? There's a, there's By a Henry night, Miller? Yeah. There's yes, a, there's I a, have. There's a great... Uh, Great story where he's talking about he's so poor and he's starving and he and he's eating like you know moldy cheese rinds out of his roommate's garbage. That's a that's a pretty nice cheese oh, horror story. All right, well stay, stay. We need a show like we need a story like that. So anyway, congratulations to Jack and Nat for for getting in here this morning. Also, uh, Kane Vineyard and Thank Winery. Thank you, Kane Vineyard and Winery. For Kane Vineyard and Winery. And, and you're Steve hear- Pope and Frank Reese coming up next. No, of course. I mean, I'm not there yet, but I just want to thank Kane and uh, Kane Vineyard and Winery. Um, for supporting uh, Heritage Radio and the whole network. And God knows we need people like them to get these types of messages out there to uh, the world. And by the way, I want to say we are in 160 countries. Yeah. 161 countries log on to this network for information. So we are more than just a beacon to New York. We're a beacon to the universe. That's the plan. Hey, guys, before we leave, one sustainable candy choice for Halloween sustainable candy that yeah. would be chocolate but yeah what kind of chocolate cacao cacao nibs there you go. Cacao. cacao nibs cacao. that's the cacao. headline cacao cacao thank you for nibs <laughs> ah, see ah. you next week I got if I had that freaking sound effect board right Shepherd, Chef Steve. Uh, welcome aboard for this morning. It's the uh, beginning of fall here. We certainly know by the weather. It's been changing and dropping cooler and cooler. I have a guest with me today. He is the CEO or founder of Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. We're going to be talking a little bit about some scientific stuff. Later on, if we don't run out of time, I'll be also talking about a special dish I like fixing from France, and it's chicken mornay. First of all, let me introduce you to Frank Reese. Frank, are you on board? I am. Good morning. Good morning. Well, listen, I tell you, one of the things that we're going to talk about today is misconceptions and buzzwords. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in finding out a lot more about the scientific side of, of what we produce because it has a lot to do with what we produce in our cooking and, the, and our product. There's a lot of words out there such as free range and organic free and antibiotic free and, and all these are turning into buzzwords. And you know, in my previous conversation with you, we talked a little bit about how some of these words don't mean a thing if you would get right down to it. Other words are very important to hear and look at. I know we have a public out there that is growing that is more and more concerned about not only getting the natural, whatever that may be, but also 
the, the better quality of poultry so that when they cook, they get what they need, as well as it's safe. So let's talk a little bit about the, the magic word organic, first of all. What do we mean when we say organic? I, I look on a package and it says, oh, it's organic. What does it mean? Frank? Oh, you're asking me that. I thought yeah. that you were just doing a personal question, yeah. asking the people. Yeah. Organic basically for standards for poultry means that no pesticides were used and no antibiotics were used. Uh, there is some people who, you know, I, I don't know if it's um, USDA law that it has to come from non-genetically modified grain, but basically it means no antibiotics and no pesticides were used in the chickens that were grown in the building. Well, I know we were doing some review earlier today, and it's interesting to find out when we're talking about antibiotics and no antibiotics used. Give me some clarification on that, because at, at one time I, I, I used to was looking at some of the old magazines, and, and antibiotics were used all over the place. Well, yeah, antibiotics have been used for years, but the difference is in the past antibiotics were used to help with birds that were actually sick or to help clean up a problem. Now antibiotics are used to prevent disease, and so they, they actually give the chickens very low levels of antibiotics from the moment they're hatched until uh, a week or so before they're processed. So what you're saying is, is are they building up a, a resistance or a, uh, they're not able to, uh, to function without this? So give me a little bit of information there. Well, the, what you're doing is you're leading into a whole different issue. Why do these animals have to have antibiotics to begin with? Right. And why, you know, what genetically is happening uh, to that chicken that it has, you know, immune system. So then you get into all the other issues which involve, you know, you put 10,000 or 20,000 birds in a building and confine them in there. Uh, you're just, you're, you're, you're giving a perfect media for bacteria to grow. So, and then you also have an animal whose immune system is depressed anyway because this animal is growing 300 times faster than a normal chicken. Which is, which is, again, to give the listeners a definition of that, that heritage bird that we talk about all the time is a slow-growing bird as opposed to the commercial birds that are there today. When, when did we have this changeover? When did we actually change over from the, from the heritage usage of the standard breeds to this commercially created bird? Well, you can go back as far as... Uh the 1948 Chicken of Tomorrow contest, when they first began to hybridize, when they began to cross. But the, the real understanding of, of rapid growth, uh, feed conversion, and everything in broilers really didn't get fully understood until about 1970. And it was in 1970 that the, the scientists really got behind it. And, you know, broiler farms was no longer an individual family farm thing that became a mass production thing. And by that part, the, what I'm talking about is, is those who choose to know who produces the genetics. You know, genetics, the little baby chicks were no longer being controlled by the individual family farm, but by major genetic factory farms. Well, one of the things that I'm thinking of, and, and it's something that I'm, I'm looking at, and I'm going to be real careful here, but what it boils down to is we're very close to, to elections, 
And one of the uh, one of the things that I'm noticing a lot of the election things is giving the small business owner an opportunity to to work and and revitalize the nation. And it, that struck a chord with me because at one time the small farmers actually sustained our country through their 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 small businesses. And now it appears that that's changed completely, where the where the smaller individual farmer is no longer uh, able to really do what it once did, and that was support the nation. Now I know I sound biased there, but it's uh, it seems to be very much like that. One of the hey guys. Yes. Sorry to interrupt. Um, we have a question from a listener that just emailed us. Uh, okay, they're, they're They're saying that they see the word all natural used all the time, and they feel like it's watered down. What exactly does the term all natural mean? Frank, you want to take that? What all natural means is, is the animal was not further processed. All natural has nothing to do with the genetics or how the animal was raised or what the animal was fed. All natural has to do with after the animal is killed, what was done to that bird. Uh, within the industry right now, there's, there's a big debate because there are companies that are injecting the chickens with uh, flavor enhancers, chemicals and salt water, and still calling their product all natural. So that is all that all natural means. There are some other consumers, uh, large poultry producers, who are saying if you do anything to the uh, to the chicken after it is killed, you can no longer call it all natural once you do the slightest change. So this is a big issue right now because there are people who are lobbying to the USDA to get them to take that label off of products if you've done anything to them. It has nothing to do with the genetics or how the animal was raised or anything. Well, you know, I know you're working, uh, Frank, on a clarification paper that will be very interesting once it's been released on pretty much uh, everything we're going to, uh, that we are talking about today. One other word is, is this magic word called uh, hormone. And this is, this is really scary to see what has happened in the past and why it's been outlawed and what has taken place with that. Give me a little bit of information about this whole aspect of hormone injections or hormone feeding, that type of thing. Well, chickens have never been fed uh, hormones uh, per se. They have been fed what you would normally think of as growth, growth hormones. Now, back in the 50s and back in the 60s, they were injecting uh, pellets into chickens, uh, causing them to become chemically designed capons. In other words, this hormone would override their own natural hormones and cause the bird to grow faster. But that, got, that became outlawed in 1970, and that was, you know, people started coming in and saying, you can't do this anymore. Well, if that's the case, why are they still putting on their hormone-free or that type of thing? Uh, you see, Maybe yeah. it's because of the old... The old stuff from years ago. See, I look at that as an, another buzzword, and I think it's confusing to the consumer uh, on on those particular words and how they're used. Each one of those things. When well, you also they didn't need the use of it anymore because the scientists of the of the meat industry was brilliant. Uh, they just said, "Okay, we can't use outside chemicals to make these chickens grow faster." So we've got to find another way, and they did a wonderful, brilliant job. They mutated them. They mutated the obese gene, 
which uh, is really something to talk about. We'll within talk about the that. broiler. Yeah. And uh, we're able to internally within the animal through through mutation, through morphism, to to develop the chicken we have of today, which no longer uh, is dependent upon outside feed or chemicals. I mean, you can take the industrialized obese chicken of today and raise it out on pasture, raise it organically, do whatever you want, and it's still going to grow at this which tremendous is, rapid rate. Which brings on another pretty good clarification. When you say, you know, you can take these birds, so when you're saying free range, and that's another buzzword, free range is still most always, not every time, but most always this commercially engineered bird that's being raised free range. So you're really, you're still getting a Franken chicken who can't stand up after 42 days that's managed to be outside for a short life. Is that correct? Yeah. Most of these industrialized broilers, there's always exceptions one way or the other, but on average are, are dead-end animals that are designed to die uh, just because they physically can't hold their obese weight. By the time they're 10 or 12 weeks old, they're going to die because they just plain can't walk. Well, and, and that itself is an injustice. I, I've been coining the phrase here lately, Franken-chicken, as is said of Frankenstein, and it sounds like something out of a lab in many ways as opposed to the heritage bird. Now, I know that the heritage bird, as it is listed, and this is another misnomer, a lot of people talk about having heritage birds. How do we know uh, there's one signifying factor that says it's heritage, and you might mention what that well, is. Pertaining to this would be rate of growth. Okay. Um, if it's truly a heritage chicken, uh, to get to market weight, if there is a key name for, or level for market weight, that would be a bird that would dress out at three, three and a half pounds. Um, with a true authentic heritage chicken, it takes 124 days or four and a half to five months for a normal chicken that has not been mutated to get to that weight. Any chicken that grows faster than that you know, there are 60, 80-day chickens that a lot of people claim are more wonderful and more humane, but still, that's still twice as fast as the heritage bird. The industrialized bird that you buy at the grocery store and most of, most of these stores, whether they're organic or not, because organic doesn't say anything about this, grow in 42 days, and some of them are even killed in 39 days, and that's through genetic engineering. Well, you know, I'm, I'm always telling people as a chef that, that there, and this is a catchphrase I also use, it, 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 there's a reason why it takes 11 herbs and spices to, uh, to uh, create uh, a lot of the products today. And, and one famous colonel did that because during that time, that was the advent or the change in the 50s, and they were able to uh, utilize that bird much faster. But it, the flavor's lost. I know that, you know, in researching at some of the old uh, stores and talking with the old people, they used to go to the grocery store or to the butcher, and they would order a fryer or a roaster or baker. They didn't say, just give me a chicken that weighs this much. Uh, give, give us a little definition of what that's all about. If I have a fryer, I, I, I have something different than I do when it's a roaster, right? Yeah, fryers and, and broilers. Uh, fryers actually were used to be called a spring chicken because that was the only time of the year they were available. But it has to do with age and weight. And, uh, and as, as those words change, as you get into roasters, into hens and roosters and everything, 
the age can be anywhere from 16 weeks up to a, a two-year-old bird. So those, at one time, those words actually meant something. Uh, and if you got a roasting hen back in the old days, it was truly a hen. Uh, now, you know, it, those words mean nothing. Well, again, looking at the development of the bird, when we're, we're speaking of, of uh, the health factor and, you, and, and the closed cage raising that takes place or confined quarters, there are some, there's also some areas of what, what some people term as free range. Uh, you mentioned something about free range can mean you simply open the door for a little bit, they look to, get to look outside, and then that's it. So free, true free range is what? Well, by the USDA rules, free range means the animal has access to outside. Doesn't mean they go there, but they have access to it. There's also another thing that people call free range, but all it is is portable confinement. It's called the chicken tractor system. Uh, you know, it's a box that may be eight feet wide and 12 feet long and three feet high, and they'll put 100 chickens in there and they will shove it across the pasture. Uh, and they call this free range, and yet the bird is completely confined within a box outside, uh, which I think is, personally, I think is more cruel than keeping them confined in a building. Sure. One of the other things that I want to touch on, which is really very interesting, we, we, I know that we have a recent study showing the breakdown of calories, proteins, uh, fats, minerals, things of this nature that are in heritage birds and in what level. And there's some astounding, uh, in, a, in an immediate study, it doesn't seem like a lot, but when you look at the overall picture, it's, it is a lot. That I notice that our birds literally have higher, uh, higher base of protein, lower fat, all of these things, and would you attribute part of that to the fact that they are free-range or they're out there living? No, I, I pertain it to the genetics. Okay. So the fact that the genetics are there. Tell me a little bit about trace minerals, because that seems to be a very important thing also. Yeah, there seems to be nationwide a lot of people concerned about the amount of trace minerals in our diet, and we have been able to show using the labs at Kansas State University to show that we have three times the amount of trace minerals in our chicken compared to the industrialized chicken. And again, this is just inherent in the breed because it's, it's true well, to that, itself. Now that part of it, the trace minerals has to do with the length of growth. Uh -huh. the, the, the skeleton of the animal where these minerals are collected actually live long enough to be able to develop these trace minerals. The other thing is, is even in humans, uh, you know, they're always saying exercise, exercise, so that you strengthen your bones, which is a collection of minerals. Well, if you can find an animal uh, within a box or within a building, and that animal isn't able to run, jump, and fly, and also because it physically can't, uh, the trace minerals are going to build up. And then also if you kill them when they're five weeks old or eight weeks old, you, they haven't lived long enough for the bones to even harden. So as far as trace minerals, that has something to do with the length of growth. Now, proteins and fat have to do with genetics. Uh, you know, our birds are much higher in protein and lower in fat because the obese gene has not been mutated. And that's the next thing that I want to go into. It was a great segue there, segue there, because I got a little concerned about this, this 
new development of knowledge, at least new knowledge to me, about this obese gene. Uh, give us a picture of how that works with the bird, but how it might relate to us also. Okay. Um, the, they, the geneticists have known about the obese gene for a long, long, long time, but it's only been recently in the last uh, five or six years where we have been able to, through the work of poultry geneticists, uh, to do a complete genome of the chicken. And one of those things they have been able to do is to isolate this obese gene. The obese gene is in all vertebrates. It's in man. It's in all animals. It's, you know, it's in birds. Um, and they have beginning to do more and more research uh, on what physiologically happens when we mutate this obese gene so that it no longer functions as it normally should. And so there's, you know, I don't want to get too technical and I don't want to get deep into it. If people are interested, they can ask. But there's more and more science. But the simplest thing, I think, as far as for cooks and so on to realize is, is that what happens is, is you now have lower protein and higher percentage of fat because you have this animal that grows very rapidly and then becomes morbidly obese. And so this is the normal body's reaction to this high levels of hormones that the animal produces because it is mutated that causes this product to come about. Well, that transcribes to me as a chef one of the simplest phrases of all, and that is you are what you eat. And that's been passed around for a long time. And as, as we become more knowledgeable about what, uh, what is taking place, and there is a, a, a whole surge of this across the nation, when we get to a point where we, we start realizing we truly are what we eat and we need to be very careful. As, uh, as a chef, I, I take that in consideration tremendously because I want to make sure that I produce the best quality, the best flavor, and and uh, best nutrition for anyone that I serve. And I think that the key factor to me is is again I go back to to flavor, the naturalness of flavor, the importance of that. But behind that flavor, from what I'm hearing from you, is a whole lot of other things, and uh, it's interesting. Well, you're getting ready for turkeys, if I'm not mistaken, and and. I know you're getting ready to send uh, uh, quite a few off to, to, to the plant to be processed. Uh, I know that you have your staff go through this entire process to, to ensure that the, that the birds are handled humanely, and when they are processed, they're processed to a, a high standard. So are you, are, you, are you and your team ready for this? Yeah, they've already started. Uh, in fact, members of Good Shepherd will be at the plants to make sure that all of our qualifications will be met. And so we actually, uh, this is part of the reason why our turkeys are more expensive, we actually pay twice as much to have our turkeys processed as other people, but that's because we ask these plants to actually slow down and to treat the turkeys with respect and humanely through the processing. So as a result of this, we end up paying more, but we think we get a better product, and we think most of our people who are kind enough to buy one of our turkeys for their holiday are expecting the best. And that, that for us starts not just at the processing plant, but starts with, at the very beginning when we hatch our own little turkeys and through the entire process. Well, you know, one of the things that I keep 
thinking of is how how the public has this thirst for better uh, better food and, and and higher quality of food. And I think that nothing's more important than around the holiday season that people realize that they're doing not only the right thing, but they're eating the better quality. And again, with the information you've given today, let us know a little bit behind what's happening to the genetic basis and what's happening to our, our birds of today. Frank, I want to thank you for coming on listening and talking today. And uh, I'm going to go through this recipe real quick because it's something I'm going to thank try. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye. I'm going to go through this uh, recipe real quick because it's one of my favorites to use. It's called Chicken Mornay. It's from France. Relatively easy. If you're interested, we can, I can certainly email you the, the recipe or on my site. You just simply take two uh, cups of diced cooked chicken, which you can bake one of the chickens slowly and make sure it's tender. Then you take three cups of, uh, of a cream sauce. I sometimes even use an Alfredo sauce. Six sliced olives, a half a cup of pimento strips, and a fourth a cup to sherry. Sometimes I add a little bit more sherry. Salt and pepper, and then, of course, uh, your favorite noodles, whether they're homemade or, or store-bought and cooked and drained, and then a cup of grated Swiss cheese. And all you have to do is pretty much mix everything together into, and then place it into a casserole dish, uh, and you line the bottom with the cooked noodles first. Pour it in, uh, into the, the container, cover the top with grated cheese, bake in the oven until the cheese is melted and it's light brown. It's a very quick dinner, and it's absolutely wonderful in taste. I'm going to be in New York next week. I will be at the signing on Ellis Island with uh, Molly O'Neill and her book, One Big Table. Also, I will be on the 11th at, in Syracuse or just outside of Syracuse for the American Livestock Breeders Conservatory Convention where I will be doing a whole presentation on cooking heritage poultry. And I'm also working with opening up a new bistro in the uh, lower area of New York, in Deposit, New York, and that bistro will be featuring some of our products. So uh, I hope you have a, day, a good next week, and I will talk to you again next, next week.